Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today I'll be speaking with Catherine Owl. Catherine is the head of Research Group European Governance and Public Finance, Institute for Advanced Studies in Austria. And before we start the podcast, I would like to say that as I was editing this conversation to be published on Friday by the European Liberal Forum, we came across with the terrible events that happened in Vienna. And of course, this week, Austria was not the only country that had terrorist attacks. Same thing happened in France, as we all know. But in this particular, because Catherine, she's from Vienna, and that is mentioned several times during the podcast, I wanted to start then this episode by, of course, expressing our solidarity with everyone in Vienna, anyone in Austria, anyone in France, and any country that could be subjected to this kind of terrorist attacks. We are liberals, and that means that we are inclusive, we are tolerant, we are multicultural. But one thing we should not be, it's accepting of barbaric and senseless violence in the name of whatever dogma people defend. Because the other thing that liberals defend, it's individual liberties. The liberty of thinking, the liberty of expressing, the liberty of loving, the liberty of wanting a political system instead of another one, the liberty of defending that state and church should be separated, and those things we should not abdicate. So with that, I bring you Catherine Owl, and after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of November. Here with Catherine Owl. Catherine, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ricardo. Oh, it's great to have you here. And I first saw you on the webinar organized by the European Liberal Forum that at the time we were in uh, the lockdown because of the pandemic. And the title of the webinar was In Sickness and in Health, Will Democracy Outlive the Coronavirus? And at the time, I was very interested because you brought up the importance of parliamentary culture and tradition. And in this conversation, I will try to go farther than just the scope of how these things are important in a crisis like this one that we're living through now. But also because we are seeing increasingly more polarization and more tribalism in politics. So tell us the importance of these two concepts. Parliamentarism or parliamentary culture isn't necessarily about polarization, but it is, of course, about pluralism, pluralism of ideas, pluralism of political ideologies, of political viewpoints. So parliamentary parliamentarism is, and this is one of the fundamental functions of parliamentarism, is about organized political fight a public political fight between different problem definitions, different solutions, uh, and different underlying um, political ideologies. And this is uh, what makes parliamentarism vibrant. This is what makes debates vibrant. And this is also where debates serve their main function, namely in informing the electorate about the positions of different parties uh, within parliament. So while this is, um, I would say, an integral part of parliamentarism, um, we do see, at least in some parliaments, um, sort of a development into where 
positions between uh, different camps within parliament, between different ideological positions do become polarized. Um, do become polarized to an extent where it is no longer about an exchange of arguments, an exchange of positions, and the debate on the best solution uh, for a predefined uh, problem, but rather about simply winning the argument, shouting down the opponent. Exactly. That brings me to my second question, which is the dysfunction of a parliament. And we've been seeing that in some parliaments, and I remember, for example, if you go with examples in, in Asia, in Korea, I always see people fighting <laughs> in the parliament. But also in Italy, there's that, what you mentioned, vibrant, but sometimes it gets a little too extreme. And I'm even thinking about the United States that has a completely dysfunctional government because the House of Representatives is so broken. So having debate as a main function to inform the citizen to also the members of the parliament to make informed decisions, do you, are you afraid that this dysfunction can just ruin all this or do you think that the dysfunction is also part of the process? I think it depends very, very much on, on the parliament. It's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think we see that in the US... Um, this has led um, to, let's say, dysfunctional politics. Um, I'm not sure I would necessarily say the same um, about Italy, for example. Um, I think in some cases, uh, physical fights in um, parliaments are not simply parliamentary emotions boiling over, um, but it's also a show, I guess, put on. Um, for the spectators, for the electorate. That's an interesting point, the, the point of putting a show. I never thought about it on those terms, but um, next time there is a fight, <laughs> I'll try to see who's smiling to the camera. Now, uh, getting more into the, the, your field of work, your field of research, which is how can then parliaments adapt technical changes to operate during crisis, and already talked about the coronavirus, but it could be any other crisis, so that we have then a function parliament and a function decision-making body. Well, the important thing is that the coronavirus is in many ways uh, similar to other crises that we've had, uh, but in other ways it's very, very different. It is similar to other crises. For example, think about the Eurozone crisis. Think mm -hmm. about the global financial crisis. Um, crisis situations are, by definition, situations in which decisions have to be taken very quickly, often based on incomplete information, in a in in a state of somewhat somewhat in a state of emergency. And in those kinds of uh, situations we usually see the executive, i.e. the government, taking over, taking control, while parliament takes a back seat. And at the same time, we see that within parliament, very often party politics takes a back seat. So um, the opposition refrains from massively criticizing um, the government. It's more of a, we're in this together, we're trying to solve this as quickly as possible. And that's something um, that we see at the at the height or at the start 
of uh, most crises and, and emergency situations. And that was the case with corona uh, as well. What made corona so special is that it threatened the institution of parliament itself. Because parliaments are, after all, um, institutions that bring together a large amount of people in a more or less confined space. And parliamentarians are human beings that can get affected by the virus as well as uh, as all other people. And that, of course, threatened the, the, the very working methods of parliaments. So while parliaments were able to meet and have debates and, and um, sort of legislate, i.e. perform their usual functions during other emergencies, the uh, COVID-19 crisis, the pandemic changed that because parliamentarians were not able to meet as they uh, were used to. And for some parliaments, let's probably most parliaments even, it was very, very difficult to adapt to this situation because uh, parliaments, and here we go back to your first question, are uh, institutions with fairly rigid rules and regulations about um, their procedures. They are based on... on um, members of parliament meeting either in the plenary together or meeting in person in committees. They're very often quorums, uh, i.e. Um, rules on the number of people that have to be present for parliament to be able to function. And all of that becomes very, very difficult if you can't have uh, people congregate together. That's a great point. And uh, how can we change this? How can we make then this um, rules and regulations and culture and needs. It's a democratic process, so we cannot trample over things. But how can we make this then more adapted, more flexible to situations like this one with the coronavirus that you explained so well? Um, I think, I mean, parliaments have found a number of solutions to this. And I'm now not talking about the immediate crisis solutions, which were like having just a small number of, par uh, of parliamentarians present or something like that. Um, but what we can see is the move, uh, of course, uh, towards more digital means. Um, we all experience that in our lives, um, that we're having digital work meetings, um, we're meeting our friends online. And the same works for parliaments as well. So uh, parliaments were uh, some more, some way less prepared for that. Some had already invested in digitalization, in the options for remote voting, for video conferencing, while others had to build up um, these possibilities. Um, committee meetings are, for example, fairly easy to organize uh, online. Uh, a lot of the... Um, Parliamentary uh, instruments that are used uh, in addition, uh, parliamentary questions, a lot of the oversight functions can be quite easily done digitally and online. Uh, the problem is that uh, not all of the um, functions that parliaments perform can be as easily uh, be done online simply because it changes the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And this is especially true for... Um, parliamentary question time where parliamentarians can put questions to the government. The government government has to answer um, 
on the spot and in person, but it's especially true for plenary debates. And we've all seen that. We, I mean, many of us, and I'm sure you uh, experienced that as well um, in the events that you organized, having a work meeting online can be very, a very, very efficient affair. Having a broader uh, workshop or a broader presentation, uh, presentation with audience engagement is more tricky to organize online because you don't it's it's much more difficult to organize the back and forth between participants and the same is true for plenary debates plenary debates can be organized digitally but they work very differently if if parliamentarians can't use interjections uh in into someone's speeches if uh, you can't see the reactions of parliamentarians because their microphones are all muted. Some of them don't uh, necessarily have the cameras on. So all of the mm -hmm. engagement with the speaker that comes from, from the audience within the plenary uh, is suddenly missing. So a lot, yeah, a lot of the interaction is very, very difficult to organize. I haven't seen anyone yet in the countries that I follow more closely, saying, well, listen, we need a legal framing for these changes, meaning that we're doing this so that we have parliament working and have the relationship with the executive working. But do you think there could be problems where people can say, well, but for that, for that we need changes in law, we need changes in constitution if it has to, to be that way. So are we in danger of someone just trying to put sand in the gears and say this ne all needs to be changed or the changes that we've done even if it is technological digital ones they will stand by themselves i wouldn't put it uh, putting um sand in in the gears uh yes in most parliaments actually these changes had to be made through um, a legal change to the procedures, either to the parliamentary rules of procedure, um, in part, um, procedures for the parliament are laid down in law. Uh, so laws had to be changed, for example, to enable uh, remote voting. Remote voting is something that uh, statutes, or in some cases, even constitutions do not account for because this mm -hmm. is something that parliaments didn't have to deal with until now. In fact, some uh, constitutions, for example, the Constitution of Austria, uh, does not permit um, remote voting. Parliamentarians actually have to be present in the plenary. So yes, uh, all of these changes um, have to be made. Some have already been made and others have found working solutions around it. For example, in the Austrian Nationalrat, one, uh, the, one solution uh, was to fit each seat um, in the plenary with a uh, sort of safe cubicle so that parliamentarians can sit um, without... Um, can sit protected from each other, let's say. I'm going to change gears a little bit because one of the things also that interests you and I would like to have your thoughts on that, it's a little bit the, the idea and, and as you were mentioning, as for example, the power goes to the executive and the parliament, it's all behind the executive during times of crisis, that this could be seen as there is no other way. 
And that can stunt scrutiny, can stunt um, the media from asking questions, even the general public to participate in the project. So how can we find an equilibrium between the needs of having things working and working in a way that they're trying to solve problems, but on the other hand, the needs of having people say, hey, we don't like those solutions or we don't think that is the way to go. What are your thoughts on this? Um, the the period during which we see what you describe, um, this sort of rallying around the flag effect that we see both within parliament, but also outside of parliament, where sort of the whole country sticks together, sticks behind the government. Um, the government uh, uh, is usually shooting up in the polls. Um, there's There's strong support. Ideally, that lasts a very, very short time. And ideally, decisions that are made during that time all have very, very short sunset clauses. In other ways, they're temporary measures to deal with um, the immediate crisis and as soon as possible, parliament sort of comes in uh, back in fully. And again, this is something that we see in a lot of uh, European parliaments, where sort of after this very, very short initial time period, Parliaments have been very engaged in um, dealing with the crisis, in uh, getting involved in the legislation needed for the crisis, in scrutinizing um, the government. And fairly quickly, we can also we could also see uh, not only media discourses, but also public discourses becoming more critical again and questioning uh, decisions by the government uh questioning yeah questioning plans um going forwards with dealing with the pandemic i mean one of the one of the big debates had been the application of this sort of corona uh, tracking app um where we've had massive discussions um weighing the benefits of being able to track contacts uh, versus the 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 way these tracking applications might also track sort of people's whereabouts. Um, another uh, argument has risen around, and even though it sometimes takes a sort of ridiculous turn, but also the, the whole debate about wearing masks has at least, you know, it has forced a debate about um, the, the medical arguments about behind wearing masks. Um, and we have seen over the course that there's been quite some, some change also in the discourse um, coming from uh, governments. When at first the, the real utility of masks was sort of dismissed and then suddenly um, the importance of wearing masks became predominant in the in the discourse. So yeah, we 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 see all of these these critical discourses happening again. What we also see is that um, as time goes on, um, we can see sort of new institutional means of holding the government accountable, of uh, questioning being put into place. For example, we can see parliamentary commissions uh, or, sorry, parliamentary committees for coronavirus-related issues being set up in parliaments. Uh, in Austria, um, we have just had an expert commission 
publish the report on the decisions that were made in Ischgl in Tyrol at the outbreak of the crisis. And uh, the report has been quite critical uh, with the authorities, both in uh, Tyrol and um, of the federal government and the uh, Austrian chancellor in particular. So we, we see all of these democratic measures uh, coming into gear. If I may um, add another uh, example from Austria, we've also had um, some of the decisions by the government. As you may know, we've had a very, very strict lockdown in Austria, where um, for uh, over a course of some weeks, um, people were only allowed to uh, leave their homes for three very narrowly defined reasons. And uh, this has been challenged in the constitutional court and found unconstitutional. And this is these are exactly the democratic safeguards that we have. And um, the after or sort of the 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 weeks after the immediate onset of the crisis also show that these institutions work. I would also like for our listeners to know a little more about the work you do and the work that the group European Governance and Public Finance does in Vienna. You are the head of the research group. So tell us a little bit how it is your day-to-day apart from living in um, beautiful Vienna. Living in beautiful Vienna is a big part of it. Um, <laughs> uh, the the group that I'm I'm heading consists of political scientists and uh, economists, and what we focus on is as yeah as the title says it's it's about sort of governing and governance in a European context. So we look at uh, EU policy, but we also look at uh, Europeanization. So European politics within the member states with a very strong focus on democratic legitimacy. So, for example, one of my um, main research foci is the role of national parliaments in EU politics. Um, another thing that we that uh, our group is responsible for is we are the uh, national coordinator for Austria for the European Social Survey. So uh, this is sort of the, the European part. And then we have uh, very strong connections to the economic side in the uh, within the group. So we currently have a, a project on the European budget. Um, but we also deal with um, public finances, uh, tax systems, social security, impact on labor market, um, both within Austria, but also um, sort of across member states and within the EU. Now that's a handful. That's the, the, the big round. Yeah, but then I'm going to steal a couple more minutes from you then and maybe we can have a second podcast about this topics in particular but how do you see then different parliaments in different member states all working together for the, uh, the project of building up the European Union I'm, I'm actually this is a very interesting point and something that I'm also very interested so how do you see that as an expert that is studying this dynamics Big topic, and and uh, it would definitely nice to be have a, a another podcast on it. There's a um, a whole institutional structure for interparliamentary cooperation that has been built up 
uh, it within the EU over time. As you know, there probably know there are a number of interparliamentary conferences that convene for specific topics, for example, for uh, economic government, uh, governance, for uh, common foreign security policy. Uh, there is the uh, conference of um, the committees dealing with European affairs, COSAC, so there is a there uh, is a very very institutionalized structure for parliaments to meet. What makes what makes it difficult is of course that parliaments um, are have different um, political interests, although they might um, often have very similar institutional interests when it comes to EU politics and their involvement in EU politics. Uh, when it comes to policy making, um, they um, may have very different uh, interests, and so it's it's sometimes difficult for parliaments to agree on common positions. It is also difficult for national parliaments and the EP uh, to agree on different uh, on on common positions, especially as sometimes institutional competition comes in between the two levels, the two parliamentary levels. And of course, one of the problems is that uh, most of the positions of national parliaments neither bind um, the national government at home, nor do they have any binding effect on the decision-making uh, EU institutions. So a very, very um, helpful tool for a parliamentary exchange of information um, for parliamentary deliberation, probably not so much for sort of actual influence. Catherine, this has been a fascinating conversation and a very informative one. We're getting to the end of our time together, but I'm going to ask you to please direct people to know more about the work you do and the group that you lead. I think the best way um, is to have a look at our website, um, the website of the IHS, which also presents um, all of the other interesting research groups of the IHS. And uh, from there on, uh, you can have a look at uh, projects, publications. Um, you can also follow the IHS on Twitter um, to be informed about events taking place, about publications. And we have a, a quite nice newsletter that you can subscribe to. Wonderful. I'm going to put all these links in the podcast show notes so that people can uh, follow you and follow the work you do and also to get involved. But for now, I'm going to thank you so much, Catherine. This has been a very illuminating conversation and I hope to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to be back and thanks for the lovely talk. back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher and spotify and if you feel like it give us a five-star review in that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas and now for some of the events organized by elf this month of november on the 7th of november based in Tallinn in estonia we have coping with climate change risks and opportunities for liberal economies and society the event would consist of two parts there's a keynote speech for European Commissioner Simpson and then an open panel with politicians and experts. 
The outcome of the event is going to be a press release that is going to include three new ideas to fight climate change. We also have other cooperational partners from other European countries and also the involvement of young Baltic liberals as an audience. And then on the 11th of November, based in Stockholm in Sweden, we're going to have a book launch, Smarter Investments in Transport Infrastructure, involving the private sector for more efficiency. Experience shows that investment in transport infrastructure often do not end up as planned. Costs are often underestimated and projects delayed. One possible way to reduce the problems is to involve the private sector that can be done with public-private partnerships, or PPP, and other forms of contracts by designing, building, financing, and managing an asset. This new book from the European Liberal Forum in cooperation with Foresh and Studio Centrum Albert Martens summarized the research in the field and described examples from Belgium and Scandinavian countries with relevant conclusions for decision-makers. And then on the 12th of November, we're going to have on the agenda and in this webinar, we're going to be talking about the U.S. presidential elections, the results and what they mean for Europe. The future transatlantic relations are indeed put into question at a time when the U.S. is focusing on another parts of the world and the EU is willing to show more autonomy vis-a-vis -vis its traditional partner. And in this event in particular, you're going to have yours truly podcast host. So please join us on that. And if you want to know more about all these events, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Mm -hmm.